It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Have you ever wondered what happened to Lance Von Erich? Find out in his book, Lance by Chance, Wrestling as a Von Erich. You'll read stories about Chris Adams, Ric Flair, and Billy Jack Haynes. And of course, the Von Erich family themselves. Get your book today on Amazon. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast. I'm your host, Vinny Berry, and my guest today is Ken Patera, professional wrestler of over 20 years, and he just released a book, Ken Patera, The Weight of the World. How you doing, Ken? Good. People can get it at KenPatera.com. <laughs> you left that part out. <laughs> oh, no, no, we won't. We won't leave it out. We will definitely let them know where they can get the book because you have an incredible story and we want people to know about the story. You and I have talked and we've had a, a conversation about some of the things that you've uh, experienced and encountered and some of the things uh, that fans can expect in the book. And do a lot of people come up to you and ask you about the incident with you and Mr. Saito? I mean, if you could share that story and tell me what happened and, and the the things that came out of that. Well, nobody ever asked me that stupid question anymore except guys like you. But uh, let, 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 let me give, a, give it a shot. Uh, we're wrestling in a little town in Wisconsin. And we had flown in there on Vern Gagne's twin-engine Navajo, a beautiful plane. And uh, I think it was Centerville, Iowa. Yeah, maybe, maybe some other time. But anyway, uh, we were wrestling uh, Mad Dog Bashan and the Crusher in a tag team match. During the match, the Mad Dog had whacked uh, Mr. Saito in the knee with a steel chair so hard that damn near it just busted his knee up real bad. He could hardly walk. So we finally get out of the building, 
get back on the airplane, and now we're headed for Milwaukee. Milwaukee was, I think, less than 100 miles away. But So we fly over there, and we check in the Holiday Inn. So Saido, he asked me if he could room with me. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So we get a room together, and now we're hungry. And he asked me uh, if there's uh, any place to eat. I said, well, the motel restaurant closed about three hours ago, and there's nothing. We're out literally in the middle of nowhere, Waukesha, Wisconsin. So anyway, I asked the bartender, I said, is there any fast food restaurants around here that's open? He says, yeah, right at the bottom of the hill here. Now it's wintertime. Just go down the hill there to McDonald's. Well, I fell on my ass twice going down that hill and uh, walk up to the – now because I didn't have a car. Yeah, we flew in there. I go up the order window, and I ordered uh, four double – uh, cheeseburgers. And they said, well, sorry, sir, we're closed. Yeah, midnight. I said, well, look, what do you have all those hamburgers for? Well, we're shooting a, a commercial tonight. I said, oh, that's why all the cameras and lights and everything are on. He said, yeah. He said, well, here, I'll give you 20 bucks for four quarter pounders. You know, back in those days, it's like 75 cents a piece. Can't do it. Company policy. I said, holy shit. Now we have no no food, no hopes of any other place being open. Everything was closed. It was a small town. It's a big town now, but at that time, it was a small town. So I climbed back up that stupid, muddy, slippery, icy Hill, got back to the holiday and told Saito, we have no food. Told him the situation. Well, when I was leaving McDonald's, there was some kid that they fired about a week before that, he was pissed off at him. So he, he comes up right behind me and throws a rock through the window, breaks the window. So now they, you know, the guy that was uh, at the order window, he didn't realize that it wasn't me, but he told the cops that it was me, that he was pretty sure it was me. (laughs) So here the cops are knocking on my motel room door at 1230 in the morning, and I don't know when the hell it is, so Saito answers the door. Opens the door, there are two cops. One tall, skinny girl, weighed 112 pounds. She's almost six foot tall. Uh, I refer to her as olive oil. You know, Popeye's girlfriend. So anyway, well, it's Ken Pateria. And I heard the cops ask that, so. I got off the edge of the bed and walked over to the door. I said, I'm Ken Patera. What, what, what do you want? 
well, were you at McDonald's earlier? I said, yeah. I was trying to get some food, but they're, uh, they were doing a TV commercial and they wouldn't serve me any food. Because the kitchen was evidently closed. Well, yeah, that's what we heard. They, then you picked up a boulder and violently threw it through the window. I said, okay, stop right there. I told him about the kid that had come up. He was probably about 17, 18 years old. And he threw the rock. So I explained to the cops what the situation was. And the stupid girl, she was 18 years old. Now, they put a 750, sir, 457 on her hip, handcuffs, mace, uh, her gear was as heavy as she was. But needless to say, she pulls out a can of mace and tries to mace uh, Saido. Well, Saido ducked, and I got it right in both eyes. I, I'd never been maced before in my life. And here, I can't. My eyes are burning. I can't see shit. And so now I'm out in the the hallway, and that goofy broad jumped on my back and tried to gouge my eye from uh, from behind me. So I just reached back with my elbow and boom, knocked her off. And uh, within 10 seconds, there were 16 more cops in that hallway with billy clubs banging us over the head. And so, I, I mean, they, the, the whole thing was set up. They knew what the hell they were doing. And uh, so Saito and I stacked those cops up like kindling wood. And uh, now there's one cop. His name was John Dillinger. He pulls out his big gun, points it right at me. You take one more step, I'm going to blow your brains out. I said, hold on, Buster. I said, there's no need for that. And uh can you imagine a cop's name being John Dillinger? He was a gangster back in the day. I think he got gunned down on the streets of uh, St. Paul, as a matter of fact. But anyway, uh, I said, hold on, you know. It's all over. Put the cuffs on us. Do whatever you have to do. So there's about five or six cops laying there in the hallway. We uh, let them take us to jail, book us, fingerprint us, take our mugshot, the whole nine yards. Then the next day we get bailed out. Get back on the airplane, and I think we had to go down to Chicago. So we wrestle in Chicago. We get back to Minneapolis. Well, they had all kinds of arrest warrants for us, you know, the whole nine yards. So anyway, we told the judge in the court that we wanted a quick and speedy trial to get this thing out of the way. Well, they drug it out for almost a year and a half. Every week, every week they had a big, nasty uh, newspaper article 
in uh, their local newspaper there in Waukesha, uh, Wisconsin. They, they just tried to bury us, and they did bury us. We couldn't get a fair trial. They wouldn't give us a change of venue or nothing. So they kept us there. Of course, they convicted us uh, and gave us uh, two years, two years stayed, and six years probation. The stiffest penalty in the history of Wisconsin for doing what we did. And uh, my attorney says, ah, you won't do more than 30 days, Ken. That'll be a cakewalk. Yeah. Two years. Uh, so anyway, we were in uh, Lapon Penitentiary for two years. And, uh, well, no, I take that back. We were there for six months. And after six months, the warden uh, called me up to his office and told me, he said, Ken, this is the ultimate screw job. He said, I've never seen anybody come into my prison for what you guys did on a two-year sentence. So he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get you a minimum security clearance. I'm going to send you to a work camp. Uh, do you have any college left? I said, yeah, I need six credits to graduate. He says, good. He says, you'll be able to go to college, get your college degree, and same with Saito. And so anyway, we left the Wapan Penitentiary, went to this work camp. It was like a big motel. No fences, no bars. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, nothing. We're out in the middle of a cornfield in uh, Wisconsin. So uh the prison guards that were working there, they loved uh Ken Patera. They took me golfing almost every weekend during the summer. And uh, during the winter, they took me to uh, steakhouses and all kinds of places. And uh, so if you want to say that I had preferential treatment in prison, I sure did. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think I've heard a story about Mr. Saito it was it was really hard on him because uh wasn't he i mean he was an american citizen right wasn't he over here like on a work visa or something yeah he was japanese citizen right he grew up in tokyo japan and so he could speak a little bit of english well by the time he got out of prison he spoke english pretty good because uh, he, he took classes and stuff. And like I say, uh, they separated us after a couple months. And I went to one work camp. He went to a different work camp. But it was the same situation, you know. And they had weights there to train with. You know, not, nothing like a regular gym, but it was adequate. When you guys both got out of prison and return to pro wrestling, what was wrestling like for you guys? Oh, it totally changed because that's when uh, Vince McMahon had 
then the transition. Everything was different. He had uh, hired writers and uh, television people and everything uh, to make it like Hollywood. He wanted a Hollywood production. Well, that's what he got. And, uh, but, you know, that didn't interfere with the wrestling. The only thing it interfered with was our personalities when we were doing uh, our uh, interviews, our commercials and stuff. They, everything was scripted and everything. Where prior to me getting into wrestling, none of that shit uh, went on. You know, everybody had their own personality and had their own, uh, uh, you know, uh, way of uh, delivering an interview and everything. And so, uh, yeah, when, but by the time I got out, that was all gone. And what year was the incident at the McDonald's in Waukesha? That happened in 84. Oh, okay. 1984. Yeah, and they kept us out uh, early 84. By the time we went to court, a year and a half later, uh, then the two-year prison sentence. And uh, so I started back in the WWF uh, 86, end of 86, something like that. And I was there about a year and a half. And then, you know, I was there until 88. Um yeah, maybe the end of '86 and then the end of eight. Maybe I was there two years, but that wasn't a real. Uh, that was a painful time in my life and my wrestling career, and uh, as you can imagine, yeah, like I say, the wrestling uh, business had completely changed, um, and I I didn't know a lot of the guys that were in the in the business at that time. Although I did, I probably knew 50% of them. And uh, wrestlers that come into pro wrestling are usually pretty decent people. You don't have too many jack-offs or smart-asses. You know, it, everybody pretty much knows their place. And uh, so that's how it was. Hey, we were talking earlier also, too, and you had an opportunity to work with Fritz Von Eric. Uh, once upon a time in Dallas, do you remember what year that was and what that experience was like? Yeah, well, I started up here in Minnesota in AWA, and I was making fantastic money. Like I was one of the highest paid rookies of all time in the wrestling business, you know, at, at that time. Chris Von Erich. He had a little fat, pudgy Polak by the name of Ivan Putsky down in Dallas, and he wanted to trade Putsky for Ken Patera. So Vern Gagne says, uh, well, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, Ken's been here for a year and a half now, so uh, we'll do that. So they send me down to Texas. They bring Putsky up here to Minnesota. So that would have been 
7374. It was in uh, May, May of 74. And I stayed down there in Dallas until uh, uh, November of 74. So about seven, eight months. What was it like to work with Fritz, though? I mean, what, what kind of a guy was he and what was his personality like? Fritz was a decent guy. He's a businessman. He's a chain smoker. Yeah, which nah, didn't bother me. Then he had these uh, three or four little blonde-haired kids running all over the auditorium, going through the locker rooms and running through the wrestling offices and raising hell. And those turned out to be the Von Eric boys. At that time, I think they were five, six, seven, eight years of age. They're just little kids. And uh, so when I left there to go to Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, they weren't even, they, they were still in grade school. And then about seven, eight, nine years later, I heard they were all getting into professional wrestling. And of course, Fritz uh, had changed the territory around quite a bit to accommodate his boys. All these kids, you put all four of them together, they didn't weigh 300 pounds. Yeah, just a bunch of little skinny kids. And uh, But he brought them along slow, and they all got over like a million bucks. I think they all used that claw. The claw. Fritz von Erich uh, loaned them his claw. <laughs> right. The iron claw. The iron claw. That's it. The iron claw. And so anyway, uh, I asked uh, Baron Von Raschke one time, I said, whose claw is stronger, yours or Fritz Von Erich? He said, Kenny, my claw is the best. <laughs> and as the boys got into the uh, the business, did you ever have an opportunity to wrestle any of them throughout the, the country? I wrestled them all in St. Louis at one time or another. Okay. Yeah, I, I wrestled uh, David. I wrestled uh, Kevin. Uh, I wrestled, uh, what's the one that lost a foot? Kerry. Kerry. I wrestled Kerry before his accident. And but the little one was what, Mike? Yes. Yeah, Mike was too young. I think Mike was still in high school at that time. And so yeah, they were good workers. I I enjoyed working with them. And uh it was either working with the Von Eric boys. A wrestling dick the bruiser. Now, what, 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 what do you think of those uh, odds? You know. So anyway, I picked Dick the Bruiser. I was I was wrestling in and out of the WWF at the time. I think this would have been in 1982. I had just beat Pat Patterson for the Intercontinental Belt in Madison Square Garden. I think it was February of 82. And uh, so Sam Mushnick 
he was the promoter down there in uh, St. Louis. And uh, he brought me down, and uh, I beat Dick the Bruiser. And uh, so now I was the only person to ever hold the Missouri State title and the Intercontinental title at the same time. Two of the most prestigious wrestling belts in the country at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and what made those what made those titles so prestigious at that time? It was the Missouri was held by Harley Race, right? Yeah, at one time. Right. And then he had the NWA uh, World uh, Heavyweight Champion. So that uh, that belt uh, carried a lot of weight. So then uh, and then the Intercontinental belt was brand new back in '82. And uh, I beat Pat Patterson for that. And yeah, it was uh, belts don't mean shit unless uh, the people that hold them uh, have uh, gravitas, you know, gravitas, mm-hmm. the, that they mean something. The fans can respect the the person that holds the belt. So that that's what all that was about. Yeah. And one more time, tell the fans about your book. Tell you, tell them what the name of the book is and where they can get it. The name of the book, Weight of the World by Ken Patera. And you can so, get it at KenPatera.com, right? Yeah, KenPatera.com. I'll autograph it at no extra charge. You just go to that website and uh order it and uh you'll be doing yourself a favor because it's an interesting book everybody uh i i i ought to put some of these reviews uh in my on my website but maybe i'll do that uh sometime the book's only been out for a couple months but it's okay. uh going it's it's going gangbusters uh it's about my childhood and you know my amateur career weightlifting and the Olympics and world championships and all that stuff and then of course the professional wrestling uh, a lot of stuff in there about Andre the Giant and Ric Flair a lot of a lot of people yeah well Ken it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for giving me your time Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Not a problem. Thank you again, Ken. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast with Wrestling Legs. The Pro Wrestling Vault. 35 short stories including Harley Race, Barrett Brown, Ricky Morton, Wardell Walker, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 400 photos from the independent scene. Get your book today by going to Russellville.com. Russellville. It's where wrestling lives. 